Well, if you do have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 40 through 56, the last part of this chapter. Before we do that, let us seek the Lord and ask that uh, we would truly see Jesus, and, and through this, our faith would be strengthened. Father, we are desperate before you. We come before you and we want to see Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would allow us a clear vision of him, that he would be exalted, that he would be lifted up, that Jesus would fill our minds and our hearts, that we would see him as he really is and who he is, and that we would love him. Our hearts would be drawn toward him and that we would trust in him fully and completely and cast everything upon him knowing he is our faithful Lord. Father, grant us this grace this morning and work in us, giving us these eyes to see. And we're confident that you will because we ask you in Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. We'll read the text. Now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And, they came, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. For I perceive that power had, has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. For she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You know, the hardest part about this passage that I find is that I often wish that it still was this simple 
It still worked this way. It was just like cry to Jesus, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and shazam, you're healed. Someone's about to die. Don't worry about it. Cry out to Jesus. Boom, raised from the dead. Wouldn't that be nice? But it's not like that anymore. And why not? Why is it not like that anymore? Well, to answer that, we need to understand the difference between what Jesus did here in the text and what he's doing today. Because it's clear, it's clear to all of us that those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in him, simply can't cry out to him and then he heals them of whatever. We know that. We know that by experience. We observe it on a daily basis. The reason for this is that Jesus was doing something here, something in the text that was quite different than what's happening today. Jesus here was revealing to the people that he indeed was Messiah. He was fulfilling the scriptures, as he often liked to say, fulfilling the promise of what the Messiah would come and do when he arrived. And he was also, we know, in in doing this, setting up and establishing his kingdom. However, if we read our Bibles, what happens after the Gospels? We have Acts, right? And in the book of Acts, the pouring out of the Spirit comes, and then we see something different with the epistles. Have you noticed something in the epistles? How much they're filled with telling the believers, those who belong to Jesus, that suffering is to be expected. They're under trial. They're under persecution. They're people who are sick. They're people who are dying. All kinds of trouble. And what's happening is that even among God's people, we don't see the same thing even in the epistles that we see with Jesus, where it's just, you're sick, crowd to Jesus, he heals you. You're able to die, crowd to Jesus, he raises you from the dead. It's a different dynamic. Because more often than not, Jesus is doing, he's still at work, he's still as powerful doing something, but it's a different thing that he's doing. He uses the suffering, the affliction, the trials and persecutions that come into our lives to manifest his grace and get at things in our lives that wouldn't be exposed in our hearts otherwise. Because the project's a little different. When he's working on you, when he's working on us, These things are great tools in his hands to expose us. Isn't that true? Don't you find that your trials, your sufferings, and these hard things, man, they can bring out and show you things about yourself you had no idea that was even there. And Jesus, the great physician, is working on his people in and through these. And not only that, working on them, but in the midst of it, he's giving them the grace they need. He's, he's working on them, and he's supplying for them. His power is made known to us in our weakness. But having said that, that's not to exclude. That's like, think, okay, now it's so exactly opposite. Jesus never heals his own people. We know he heals them at times. We know he delivers from trials at times. We know he frees us from persecutions at times, but not all the time. So Jesus does do some of these things, and he has done these things. And the place where we often see this amazing work that we see here in the Gospels that we just read about, and Jesus doing this wonderful stuff, is usually on the front edge of the kingdom going forward. If you can read stories even today of the gospel moving forward into territories, into lands where the, where the kingdom has not come, and Jesus is doing powerful things. You, you hear about him raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, and healing. There's power there. But then usually after a while, once the gospel is established in any land, the power of Jesus is not working 
on them, to show them and to reveal to them who he is and what his kingdom's like, his, the power now shifts and is working in them. And he's giving grace to them. And this is why Paul, saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8-10, through 10, about his thorn. You remember that section where he talks about this thorn in the flesh? And this is what he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made known in weakness. Now Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the power of Jesus is still at work. Now it's at work within him, right? But here's Paul. Paul, if you read what he goes through, what he suffers and the trials and the persecutions and the floggings and the stonings and the starvations and the shipwrecks, you're thinking, Jesus must hate you, Paul. That's awful. No, no, Jesus is powerfully at work within Paul. And at the same time, he's powerfully at work through Paul in these unbelieving worlds. He's the guy who's raising people from the dead. He's the guy whose handkerchief people touch and are healed. Paul is being powerfully used at the forefront of the gospel moving forward. But what's happening within the church and within his life is a, is, is a different power. The power of Jesus within. The world sees the power of Jesus without so often, but we experience the power of Jesus within. But you know what? In order for us to know the power, in order for us for it to experience the power, in order for us to realize this power, we must understand the nature of faith and how pivotal it is, even in knowing the power within and experiencing power without. Faith is pivotal. Because as, we'll see, as we see in this story, Jairus, it's very prominent. He says he believed Jesus, and Jesus raised his daughter. Jesus comes to the east side of the Lake of Galilee. He's on, I'm sorry, on the west side. He was on the east side, and he comes across to the west side where the crowd was, the place where he was before they got in the boat, went in, and the storm hit the sea, and then they headed over to that demoniac on the other side. And as they arrived, this massive crowd was still there. This massive crowd, can you imagine they're waiting, they're hanging around for Jesus. And why are they waiting? Why are they hanging around? This guy is so amazing in what he says and what he does that they don't even know his timetable. They don't know when he's coming back, but they still are hanging around, waiting, waiting for him to come back. A massive crowd. It's more than likely there are at least 10,000 people in the crowd, given especially given the calculations of, uh, of the event where Jesus fed. It's, it said in one account the 5,000. It said there were 5,000 men. And given that calculation, understanding the women and children that would have been involved, it's easy to think there could have been at least 10,000 people in, in many of these crowds that would gather. So Jesus is entering this large crowd, and the ruler of a local synagogue crashes through, breaks through the crowd, and falls at Jesus' feet and begins and begs him, sorry, to come to his house. Now, it's something, we have to note something here. This ruler of the synagogue, this ruler it talks about here, 
This is a guy that was appointed by the elders of the local synagogue to govern the synagogue. He would care for it. He was a caretaker of the outside of the building, the inside of the building. He would maintain it. He would protect it. And he is also in charge of putting together the, uh, the elements for the, the services that would happen in the synagogue. He was a highly esteemed man. Uh, he was looked up to and revered within the, within the broader community. And it's a, it's a good chance in many occasions if he lived right there or right close to the synagogue, he was even one of the elders that... Uh, of, of the group of elders in that particular synagogue. So this man had chutzpah in the community. He was distinguished. They looked up to him. They thought he was something else. I was a holy man. And because of this, it put a lot of pressure on him to act, to be and act as a distinguished fella, as somebody who is, has it together, as someone who's mature, someone who's you know, not given to crazy things, and yet he, he acts kind of crazy. He breaks through the crowd, and he does something pretty astounding here. He falls at Jesus' feet. This man has a pressure often, you know, if you've ever, you know, just like us at times, reform folks who are tight around a collar, you know, we like, to, we, we like things safe, right? We, we're sophisticated, educated, we're mature, we're orderly, and uh, we, we have... You know, there's social pressure to be and act and do everything and be very distinguished. Don't ruffle anything. We don't want anyone to question our sophistication. Now, if somebody comes and all of a sudden does an act that's very humbling, they come, break through the crowd, and then they fall at the face of Jesus, it's, um, you're wondering what's wrong. Something, something's wrong because this is not normal. This is not what they would do. He's, he's at his wit's end. Could you imagine? Why is he at his wit's end? His daughter is about to die. His daughter's about to die, and he, he knows, he obviously believes, he goes to Jesus, and he's willing to humble himself, and this distinguished man is willing to make a fool out of himself in a lot of ways because of this Jesus character. You've got to understand, he's like this, by the establishment, how was he viewed? This outcast, this, he was a weirdo in a lot of ways. He was out there, and, and the Pharisees are accusing him of being of Beelzebub, right? So he's not highly esteemed in the establishment. And this ruler of the synagogue goes and falls at Jesus' feet in humility and brokenness. It's an amazing picture, actually. And in front of thousands of people, Do you realize he knows he's making a statement? He's making a statement to everybody about who he believes Jesus to be. At the very least, we know this. He doesn't believe Jesus to be a witch. He doesn't believe Jesus to be of Beelzebub. He doesn't believe Jesus to be any of that. He, at the very least, either believes he is the Messiah or he's a prophet sent from God. Because God's power is with him and he knows it. We don't know the complete nature of his faith. We don't know exactly if he did fully embrace Jesus as the Messiah or not. But he at least believes that he's a man, at the very least, from God who has God's power on him and he seeks him. Whatever the case, Jesus makes it to his house. Jesus responds to him. And he's not nearly as concerned as Jairus is. He has, do you notice how the story breaks in the middle? It breaks in the middle, and all of a sudden, this interlude of this lady touching him, and he takes his time to talk to her about 
what's going on and who touched me and all that. Well, wait a second. He's headed to Jairus' house. What's happening at Jairus' house? His daughter is about to die. Now, Jairus sees this as absolutely, incredibly, priority-wise, the highest priority. Why, Jesus, are you not running? Don't you understand? Well, Jesus understands. Jesus knows it makes no difference whether somebody is alive or dead. All that matters is his word. It doesn't matter that this girl isn't. In fact, it's actually probably better that she die. Why? Not, Jesus is not, he's not interested in uh, torturing these people, but he is interested in them seeing and understanding and knowing that he is the son of God. He has the ability to speak and raise the dead. Now, that's very important. It's very significant. Because for this family to see this, to, it's better for them that the daughter die than her to just to be healed from her sickness. And Jesus even knows their faith. It's better for them because then they can see and understand and know who he is, that he's the son of God. But there's one contingency that Jesus gives to them. The only thing he requires of them, if you look at verse 50, is this. He tells them of the situation. In verse 50, Jesus speaks to Jairus, and he says this. Do not fear, but what? Only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe. The only thing they needed to do was believe. Because if there's anything that will hinder what Jesus will do, it's unbelief. How do we even know that? Well, we know that Matthew 12, and in other parts of the gospel, talks when Jesus was was talking to the people in Nazareth of his own hometown. He said that no miracles would be done in this place. And do you remember why he said that? It was because of their unbelief that nothing was going to be done there. In like manner, manner, whenever we don't receive the power and grace of Jesus in the midst of our trials, whenever, whenever we find ourselves shrill with like fear and and we're on the edge, and we, we find ourselves lacking grace or lacking the presence of Jesus, it isn't because Jesus isn't there. It isn't because his power isn't available. It isn't because he's not willing to work within us. It's because so often our own unbelief. Because when we're unbelieving, we find ourselves in a horrible situation, and we don't believe Jesus has anything good for us. What we usually believe is that Jesus must be torturing us. He must hate us. We don't believe Jesus is with us. We believe Jesus has abandoned us. And this is all because what is happening to us is not what we want or what we think is good or what we think is best. And if this is not good, how could God be good? But as I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus doesn't always deliver us from our situations. But he does always give us the grace in those situations when we believe. We need to believe. He says, only believe. Only believe that I am sufficient for you. Only believe that I am the one who can heal you. Only believe that I am the God of all grace. Only believe that I have the power that you need. And trust me. Cast your cares upon me and rest in me. 
We'll f- further see this develop, this whole idea, it, it, these two stories. They're parallel stories in so many ways because they have so much in common with the essential element here. We see this woman in the midst of this particular story of Jairus. A woman believes in Jesus, and then Jesus' power heals her. This is a woman, this woman here in our text, she has a flow of blood for 12 years. Basically a menstrual cycle that will not end. It doesn't stop. She's tried every doctor and trick known to man, and yet nothing's worked. She's spent her livelihood, it says. She's broke. She's got nothing on physicians. She's given it all towards physicians. But she believed that if she just could reach out and touch Jesus, she would be healed. And sure enough, the moment she touched him, what happened? She was healed. But Jesus could tell, Jesus could tell that power went out from him. Power went out from me. So he looked around and asked, who touched me? Who had touched me? And you can believe that when Peter responds in verse 45, it would have been with some smarmy, sarcastic tone. You could just tell. Master, the crowds that surround you are pressing in on you. And you have the audacity to ask, who touched you? It's like, how could you, who touched you? Maybe the better question is, who isn't touching you? <laughs> it's like, that's, it's a crazy question. It's like, I don't get it. Who touched you? But Jesus knew. He knew that power had gone out of him. He knows everything. It doesn't matter if 10,000 people are pressing in on him and they're all around him. And, and, and Peter's like, how could anybody not be touching you? And you ask who touches you, Jesus knows. And when the woman knew that she was found out, I wonder, it doesn't say exactly how that happened. I wonder if Jesus looked around and he caught eyes with her. And almost with his eyes said, I know it's you. And she just automatically fell at his feet and saying it was her. And according to Mark, it said that she came trembling with fear. She came trembling, it says here, but trembling in fear, she was terrified. That makes perfect sense. You know why? Because she touched him while she was ceremonially unclean. This is very important to understand. Something's going on here culturally that we missed right overhead, don't get According to the law, everything this woman touched would have been unclean because of her condition. She was in an unclean state. So everything that she, if she touched somebody, wherever she sat, whatever she did, she's making things ceremonial and unclean. In that culture, you've got to understand the stigma with that. You've got to understand how, like, ooh, like, I can't believe Jesus was touched by her, right? And she knows that if, if, if she would have touched the Pharisees like she touched Jesus... They would have been outraged. They would have shamed her publicly and probably flogged her for doing such a thing. How dare you make me unclean? How dare you do something like that? But look at the beauty of Jesus' response. Look at verse 48. What does he say to her? There's there's no shaming. There's no nothing here but this beautiful statement, verse 48. He said to her, daughter daughter not wretched unclean you dirty scoundrel how dare you daughter beautiful your faith has made you well go in peace 
Your faith. Has, that's, a, that's an interesting statement. That should be a statement where you go, well, that's a weird one. Your faith? No, I, I just read the story. If I understand things correctly, Jesus made her well. <laughs> Jesus, do you understand how this works? No, you made her well. I saw how it worked. You, you did it. And he says, your faith made you well. Now, it wasn't because he didn't make her well. He knows he made her well but because he wanted to point out how it was he made her well. It was through her faith. We can't miss the importance of this. Jesus places here a significance upon faith that he actually, you see this highlighted throughout, throughout the Gospels. Jesus will often make statements like this. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. It's because of your faith. Only believe. And all these faith statements about the importance of faith. Because we have to understand the centrality of faith. Faith in what God does, it's the biggest, that's the big point. It's the main point, right? It's, it's the important point. We can't miss. There's a lot of statements, but the thing we have to st- understand in re- reference to our duty, in reference to what God delights in, in reference to who, who, who he's pleased with, it's those who believe Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. That's the main argument Paul picks up in Romans chapter 4. Abraham is the example. This believing God, just believe him. Believe, that's what he requires of you, to trust, to have confidence in him. That's just as Hebrews 11.6 says, that apart from faith, as we've looked at before, it's impossible to please God. In fact, Hebrews, all of Hebrews, what's the point of all of Hebrews 11? We call it the faith chapter, right? It clearly points out throughout that whole chapter that faith is the common denominator among the greatest saints, among the the faithful, among God's people, the ones that he is pleased with. Who Who is the one he's pleased with? The one who keeps himself pure, the one who who thinks he's holy, the one who thinks they're righteous. No, it's not what pleases him. Because in fact, we know that the reason he even gives his standard, the reason he gave his law, when we have full revelation, we understand it's not so that you, the self-righteous, can feel good about yourself. If you're feeling good about yourself in light of the standard of God's law, you're not getting the law, and you're deceived about yourself. The point of it was to say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Oh, now you get it. Now here's righteousness freely offered to you in Christ Jesus. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive. Faith is the central component throughout. And as I said earlier, you know, faith in Jesus might not get miracles of healing, But I can say this for sure, that when we believe in Jesus, Jesus gives us grace. Now, don't be disappointed. Oh, grace, nice. I hear that word all the time. It's overused. But grace is no small thing. It's simply a, a way of saying that Jesus gives us something greater and better than we deserve. What is necessary? And, and it's a huge blessing to have it. 
so that we might have the, great, the greatest circumstances. You know, the thing is, is that we might have things just going rosy or we might have things just going horrible, things going nasty. But we can still have the greatest joy and peace known to man. So if you have grace and you can have joy and you can have peace and you can have it in the midst of a horrible circumstances, I would say that's a pretty an amazing gift to be able to rejoice in the Lord, to have his peace flood your soul. I can't imagine actually a greater gift. Because how do you put a price tag on that? To have joy and peace flood your soul, to feel contentment and fulfillment in life, to have the anxiety, the worry, the fear, and the stress gone, that's worth more than anything that health and wealth could ever give you. The problem is we often associate joy and peace with health and wealth. If I was only healthier, if I was only wealthier, But if we've lived a little while, we've known times where we had quite a bit of health and quite a bit of wealth that probably, maybe not at the same time, but we've had that stuff. But we still have an anxious pit in our stomach. We're still feeling sick. We're still at unrest. We're still not feeling the the sense of joy and peace. Well, sure, there might have been a momentary, you know, that, that time when you if you've ever come into some money and things come at that moment, you feel that joy of, of having. But quickly that fades away. And you realize that it was just the novelty of it, just the newness of it and getting it. But that newness is soon gone, like the new vehicle. It was exciting the day you got it. Two weeks later, you forget all about it. And once you realize that you might not, you start to realize you've lived enough of your life to think, you know, health and wealth, um, they won't bring you peace. You might be tempted to chase another lie. You begin thinking that if you eliminate all those things in your life that bring you stress, then you'll be at peace. So whether it's people, events, or situations, you start getting rid of, of the ones that harm you or hurt you or Don't bring you peace. You start controlling your environment and making sure you live in a situation where circumstantially through the events and people you're around, you do as much as you can to pad the environment so that you you find yourself believing that that's where the peace will come from. But you have another problem. You can't get rid of these people, thankfully, because they're your family. You can't get rid of them because they live in the same house. You can't get rid of them because they're, they're so close and we're so bound together that, you know, there's no, nowhere to go. And that's a really good place to be. Having nowhere to go, you don't like your situation, you don't like the stress you're under, because you know what? You've got to find peace from another fountain. You've got to find peace. You've got to find your joy from another place. And this is what you don't do. You don't start praying at those moments that Jesus would eliminate, eliminate the people, eliminate the circumstances, eliminate it from your life. You start trusting that Jesus has them there to reveal something in you about your weakness and to reveal something to you about his strength so that you can find his peace and his joy in the midst of the storm. 
Because that's the real blessing and goodness in life, is having peace and joy no matter what is in your life. And you get there, not by being removed from your horrible circumstances, but by receiving the grace that comes from trusting Jesus, by delighting and rejoicing in the goodness and the love of Jesus, by Jesus becoming really, really big, and and you start to really, really see who he is. As your Lord, you trust him. You have confidence in him. You see him as this amazing one that that, that has all that you need, and you can cast your cares and your burdens and everything upon him, knowing that he has everything in your life for a purpose, for a reason. You know these people in this story, you know the one thing they come to realize as their faith grows is Jesus is just getting bigger and bigger. Jesus is getting more powerful and awesome. Jesus is becoming to them the one, the answer, the one who can save them, the one who can protect them, the one who can deliver them, the one who can raise them up, the one who can free them, the one who can protect them, the one. And more and more as the Gospels, Jesus is getting bigger. He's getting more powerful. He's raised the dead. He's healed the blind. He's stopped the sickness in this woman. He's calmed the storm. And you're seeing more and more as these people watch him. You see his power. And you see his goodness and his love. And as his power, his goodness, and his love are growing, you know what's happening. Their faith in him is increasing. And they're looking to him to deliver. They're looking to him. And as they look to him, and as they trust in him, and as they hope in him, and as they rest in him, They find in him everything they need. The problem with us is that we so often, we lose sight of Jesus. We get caught up in our circumstances. And we start praying to a deistic God far off in the heavens to change something about our circumstances. I can't tell you how many times I prayed in my life that God would change my circumstances. Because the circumstances I was in was far beyond my strength. And after being beat down and exposed to my folly and the true nature of my desire, as it got exposed, you know, Dean, what do you really want? What I really want is I want to be out of this situation. And it takes a long time for you to realize that, like, how fundamentally selfish you are and what you think and what you truly believe will, will set you free and give you the peace and joy you need. And so God, in, in, in these amazing circumstances, he exposes these things in your heart. And you begin to realize, this is what happened to me, it dawns on me, man, it's amazing how much I pray and look to God to deliver me from circumstances, how little I pray and look to Jesus to give him what I need in the midst of them. That's a fundamental difference. And as I begin to look to the Lord Jesus and, and pray to him and look to him for the grace that I need and to trust him that, that where I'm at is where he wants me and what I have is what he's given me and he is good. And if I can, if I can rest in his goodness and in his love for me and knowing where he has me, and if I can look to him and count on him and trust him to supply what I need in the moment, I find my heart expanding, my joy and my peace increasing as I cast my heart and my cares upon him and let him rest there. 
But Jesus has to become really big. Jesus has to become all that he is. You have to kind of grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. If he isn't exalted in our hearts and in our minds, and if Jesus isn't big, and after he gets big, everything else gets small, then we have a hard time doing that. And I, you know, I think one of the greatest things that could ever happen to us here as a church is Jesus gets exalted, he gets lifted up, he gets bigger, he, he consumes more of our thoughts, he consumes more of our heart, we, he, he just gets more powerful, he gets bigger, he gets stronger, more sovereign in our understanding, more loving, more kind and powerful, and we're just able to cast our cares upon him. We're able to trust him for whatever's in our lives. We're able to look to him with everything that's in us. Because I'll tell you one thing, that if Jesus is small right now to you and your circumstances are big, your faith is small and you won't be trusting him. You can't. You need a bigger savior than that. He's got to be so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more able than everything that you're in the midst of. And I pray that us as a congregation, we would be able to rejoice and give thanks. You know what springs from the heart filled with love, love, joy, and the peace of Christ from trusting him? Praise of him. You can joyfully praise him. Praise him in the morning. Praise him in the night. Praise him in the afternoon. Praise him in the midst of whatever you're doing. Praise him. How can you praise him given what you're going through? How? Oh, you don't know how good he is, how powerful he is, how awesome he is. But if Jesus is getting small to you, and he's really small, he's just maybe he's up in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ministering busy. He's too busy up there. He's busy. I'm in my life and the cares and concerns of this world and everything that I'm in. Oh, it's overwhelming. And uh, boy, Jesus, would it ever be good to just get me out of this? And so we know we send up our petitions, and all we end up asking him is to just get us out of this mess. It's just a wrong vision of who Jesus is and what he wants to do for us. He's with us. He's in us in the midst of it. And he says, you know what? No matter where I have you, no matter what you're going through, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made known in weakness. And if you understand the grace that he's supplying you and its sufficiency for you, you understand his love for you, his care for you, his sovereign rule over you, the fact that he's with you and he's in you. And if you just, he gets really big and you start to delight in him. And the bigger he gets, the more you rejoice in him, the more you give thanks in him, the more you delight in him, the more you rest in him and just allow him to be Lord in your life. The smaller everything else gets. Do you realize that Jesus will work through the faith that we have in him? And a lot of times the, the, the proportion of our joy and our peace is equal to the amount of faith we have in him. Do we really, are we trusting him with everything or are we kind of only trusting him with some things? If we're to know the power of Jesus... We must trust him with everything. Trust him. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, with confidence, you can say, Jesus, you are Lord.
Jesus, you've given me this. Jesus, you're with me. Jesus, you've promised you're going to give me the grace. Jesus, you're good. And because you supply all my needs, because you give me everything I need, what's left to do? Praise him. Praise him. That's all that's left. Because he becomes big and awesome and glorious and this amazing Savior that's with you even now working powerfully, even as he was working here in our text. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And I I ask, Father, that we would see Jesus in his power and his glory, that we would see him in his goodness and his love, that we would see Jesus in his sacrificial giving of himself for us, that we would see and know that he is in us and dwells in us by the Spirit. May you, Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see that we would believe and cling to you, rest in you, cast our cares and burdens upon you, and find our joy in you. Find our peace in you. I ask, Father, that even now, every person here would see Jesus, and upon seeing them would fully trust him. And then rejoice and give him praise and thanks. Amen.